When I first started doing this podcast, which focuses on nature and cities, I had a general idea of what was interesting about the subject. But now in the fourth year, it's as if this subject, which had several facets to begin with, maybe six, maybe eight, has undergone some sort of transformation where it now has 60 or 80 facets, all of them fascinating. Our guest on the show today has exposed a new facet, a new line of inquiry for me, which is what constitutes a successful city in the first place. Is success synonymous with longevity? To be successful, does a city have to exist forever? What about those cities that existed for a few hundred years and then ceased? Does the fact that things changed, the fact that the people in the city moved somewhere else, mean that the city was a failure? I once visited Cahokia Mounds. It's a site where there once was a big metropolis. And at the time, the message I got from signs and from the visitor center there was that the ancient people who lived there had depleted their natural resources of food and timber, that trash had piled up, and that they'd eventually been forced to move because the city was no longer viable. But today's guest recently exploded that myth, and it's been getting a lot of attention. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. Hi, I'm Dr. Caitlin Rankin. I am a research geoarchaeologist at the Illinois State Archaeological Survey through the University of Illinois. Welcome, Caitlin. I'm glad to have you on The Shape of the World to talk about this new finding at Cahokia Mounds. Thanks for having me. So, Caitlin, once upon a time, the place where you've been doing your research was the largest metropolitan area in all of North America, which is pretty incredible. But tell us, what is it now? If we were to go there, what would we find? Cahokia Mounds is a state historic site located along the central Mississippi River Valley, just east of modern St. Louis, Missouri. It's the largest pre-Columbian archaeological site in North America. Most people know it because of Monk's Mound, which is the largest earthen mound in the world. The site today covers over 2,000 acres and has over 100 earthen mounds. Caitlin, what is a mound? What do you mean by mounds? So mounds can mean a lot of different things for Cahokia Mounds and the culture that we classify as Mississippian. Typically, they're either shaped as ovals, circles, ridgetop, platform, and they're all constructed by an earthen medium, so soil and sediment. Mostly, they're covered in grass today. How much higher is the mound than the ground around it? How high might a mound be? Some of them could, you know, only be four feet tall. Um, Monk's Mound, I believe, is 30 feet tall. So they can range in size and shape. And what's inside of them? It's not like, you know, pyramids of Giza where there's hidden rooms or tombs or anything. Some of them do contain burials. You could think of them as representing different lineages, and there would be structures or houses on top of the mounds. Whenever the leader of that lineage passed away, they would um, oftentimes burn down the structure, and they would ceremonially close the mounds. And what was the advantage of mound building over other possible choices for shelter and arrangement of communities? It's monumental architecture is what it is. What's the advantage of skyscrapers or what's the advantage of any other kind of structure, how we build our cities? It's a form of art and architecture. If we were on that site 1,200 years ago, what would we be seeing? What was there exactly? Cahokia was the largest settlement in North America prior to European contact. So at the peak, we have estimates of 2,000 people living in what we call the central precinct of the site, about a six-square-mile area. 
And there's also a high regional population in the floodplain um, with peak estimates up to 50,000 people. These sediments were planned and they're organized into what we call mound and plaza groups. And the plazas were these open spaces where people could play games, engage in daily activities, have markets, um, see different events. And then there would be residences around these plaza areas. So just as a way of comparison, it's always hard to imagine. Well, a thousand years ago, how long ago was that? 1,400 years ago? So at that time in Europe, there were already cities we recognize the names of, like London and Paris. And in London, Westminster Abbey had already been built by that time. How did Cahokia compare in size to other major cities that were coexisting on the earth at that time? Let's just say 1100, 1150 was the peak population of Cahokia, where estimates up to 20,000 people. So if we go to Europe around 1100, it's um, still medieval times. So if we go to London in terms of actual size of area, it's smaller than Cahokia. Population's only about 15,000. So the population's a lot smaller too. Most of the time we're thinking of historic London as Tudor London, which isn't going to come out for another 300 years. The same way places like Paris, population was probably like 3,000. So, you know, these cities hadn't really developed. And what about the Western Hemisphere? There were some big populations in Central America, Mexico. What else was happening in the Western Hemisphere as far as cities went? The city-states that we know of in Mezo and Central America, the Maya, the Aztecs, and the Incas, the Maya had already declined by 980. They weren't around in the same way by the time Cogia was growing. Cahokia is the earliest major mound center in North America. It's also the earliest to be abandoned. So again, that time frame from 1050 to 1400 AD. The Aztecs, you know, are later in Mexico. That's 1300 to 1500. And then, you know, the Inca are the latest, not really coming up as a city-state until the 1400s. And why was there a big city in that particular location? So it's a pretty central location. It's along the Mississippi River. We know that these people were trading, you know, down to the Gulf of Mexico, all the way up to Wisconsin and Michigan, as well as the Appalachians. These people were also agriculturalists, and um, there's some really wonderful and fertile soil in the area as well. And Caitlin, what do we know about what life was like there? If you, for example, were living in that community, do you have a sense of what your daily activities might have been or how life was organized? A lot of people would be working, you know, in the fields, growing different crops, maintaining crops. However, some people did kind of specialize in craft production. There were individuals, you know, making ceramics and, you know, tools that they would utilize in their own, but there's also more of kind of a centralized means of production. It was more standardized. And we do have evidence that there might actually be some specialization. So people who spend the majority of their time just practicing one thing, so like being a potter, or, you know, being someone who makes lithic stone tools um, instead of just everyone being kind of a generalist. They probably had some form of currency, trade, going to the market, seeing your friends. And they had a game called Chunky, which was a really popular one. It was a disc and stick game. There are these flat discs. You would roll down the hill and you would try and, you know, knock it down by throwing a stick or a spear at it. Have you ever tried playing it? <laughs> no, no, I haven't tried playing it. What was the hook that originally got you interested in this particular site? Do you remember the first time that you ever heard of it? 
Are you from that area or what was your first familiarity with Cahokia Mounds? I'm a geoarchaeologist, an environmental scientist who's interested in, you know, the interaction between humans and the environment. And people use soil and sediment to build the mounds. So it makes sense that, you know, someone who knows a lot about soil and sediment would study the mounds and study people who built them. And I was just really excited about having the opportunity to do archaeology in my backyard because Cahokia Mounds is only a 20, 30-minute drive away from St. Louis. So when you first started working there, what was the prevailing theory about why Cahokia Mounds was abandoned and why the city didn't continue and why it isn't still thriving today? Asking me what the prevailing idea of why Cahokia was abandoned is like asking someone, you know, why the Beatles broke up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) A lot of people like to blame it on Yoko Ono, but we all know there is a lot of other reasons. So we have a lot of different theories. There is internal fractionalization, which is that there is a change in the ruler. People didn't like the changes that were happening, and they just slowly abandoned. It's also important to note that, you know, decline at Cahokia, this population decline, didn't just, you know, happen like that. It happened gradually over the course of 200 years. There's also kind of a natural cycle to cities that they get so big and so complex that they become difficult to maintain. So some people might argue that decline is just a natural process. Others have cited possible environmental degradation, causing soil infertility, soil erosion, things that humans did that made the environment less suitable or somehow, you know, destabilized the system that they had that supported them. Then there's another one, too, that suggests that a big flood along the Mississippi happened around 1200 AD. And then the final one is climate change. Persistent droughts related to the little ice age that was happening across the northern hemisphere. So there's lots of theories. It's probably not just one of them. (laughs) It's probably a combination of a lot of things. So you've done some research, which has recently been coming to light, and I read about it first in the New York Times, that at least part of that prevailing theory may not have been quite correct. Can you explain what it is that you've recently learned and how that differs from previous ideas? The theory that you're talking about is one of those environmental degradation theories or ecocide. Ecocide is whenever human actions cause their own environmental destruction. So in this case, we call it the wood overuse hypothesis. These previous researchers were looking at wood charcoal from archaeological samples. And what they saw was an increasing percentage of local woods being utilized in the period of like peak population and decline at Cahokia. So they hypothesized that during this time period, increased utilization of local wood would have resulted in deforestation. The deforestation led to increased flooding in the bottomlands. People moved their agricultural system to the uplands to avoid the increased flooding. This caused further erosion. And they believed that, you know, kind of the, the loss of ecosystem services here and the increased flooding contributed to people leaving the area. Did you already have an idea to question that? Were you already thinking that that might not be so? Or how did it come to light? Yeah, so I wasn't specifically going out designing a research project to address this hypothesis. My questions were really about addressing environmental change through time if, you know, this space was wetter or drier than it had been in the past, and whether or not environmental change altered the use of the space. And so what I do is I use the soils themselves as a marker of environmental conditions. 
First, I found evidence that there was flooding happening very early in Cahokia's occupation. And it's really cool to see because, you know, their response to flooding in this area was to build a mound. So whenever they constructed this space, they knew that it was a wet area that flooded. However, they still decided to build this Monda Plaza group there, which is pretty cool. What we find is that through time, the landscape is actually pretty stable. It's kind of like a seasonal wetland. So it has, you know, periods of intermittent dryness. But what we don't see is like an increased flooding happening at the end of Cahokia's occupation. So what we found does not meet the expectations of the wood overuse hypothesis. Instead, what we see is evidence for stability at the end of Cahokia's occupation. Do you have a sense of how that previous narrative got started? Why did people think that that was the case? I mean, it's a pretty popular narrative, and we see it happening historically. We see it happening modernly. Clear-cutting forest causes erosion, which causes flooding problems for people who live in the bottomlands. We see it happening with grazing, with plowing. And so it's an acceptable hypothesis and an acceptable narrative for us because we see it happening all the time. However, the difference is, is the technologies. These people didn't have plows. They didn't have intensive grazing. So I think we had a European mindset of how agriculture works and the impacts of agriculture and the environment that probably didn't actually apply to these people. And I'm not the only one who sees it in Cahokia. So we know that these people had an impact on their environment. We know they're changing and influencing the ecology. However, they don't have the same geomorphic impact that we have compared to the industrial area, which makes sense because it's not exactly big populations that cause issues. It's the technologies that people are using. In the New York Times article, Jane Mount Pleasant, a professor of agriculture and someone of Tuscarora ancestry who taught at Cornell, commented on the research that for academics, there's sometimes this assumption that indigenous people did things wrong. And she was quoted as saying, there's just no indication that Cahokian farmers caused any sort of environmental trauma. Is she or other indigenous people involved with your work or are more indigenous people sort of taking a look at this and speaking up about using a different lens of perception? There are some other indigenous archaeologists who are disputing these claims and saying that it's not actually that uh, these people cause their own problems. In this case of the Southwest, there's a history of colonization that changed the access to water resources that caused their system of agriculture to no longer be stable. So it's not something that they did, but it was actually something that the Europeans messed up their um, agricultural system by changing how water was distributed. I think Jane Mount Pleasant is the best one that really has the sense of what we are taking from, you know, our own understanding of European agriculture versus what is actually more fitting in terms of like what the agricultural systems would have been like. Are there people who have studied where the people who lived in the Cahokia Mounds ended up dispersing to, where they went after the city had fully collapsed? I wouldn't say the city collapsed. I would say people left slowly and gradually through time. I don't really like that word collapse. It implies they like literally fell apart. Um, They just stopped maintaining it in the same way and stopped adding to it. So they probably went all over, probably to the north, up into Wisconsin, into the plains. They went south. And so like I said, these, Cahokia was one of the first of these major mound centers to be abandoned. 
there's still people with similar traditions in the southeast and in the Great Lakes areas and in Appalachia too. We do see evidence of them um, revisiting the area. So there probably is some ancestral linkage between these two groups. And so there's 11 modern tribes that, you know, have ancestral links to Cahokia. So, Caitlin, I'd like to know a little bit about your story. Did you grow up in a city yourself or did you grow up in the country? And what did you like to do as a kid? No, I grew up on a 250-acre farm in western PA. I didn't really have a lot of experience with cities. I really, I'm not a city person. I don't like them. It's funny then that you ended up studying what was once the largest city in North America. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, they were agriculturalists. So I have more of a connection of that. And, you know, I study the environmental side of cities. So it's kind of the confluence between, you know, urbanization and environmentalism. Did you know anyone growing up who collected artifacts or who turned your attention in that direction? Where did that first idea about being interested in archaeology begin? My dad operated heavy equipment, so I spent a lot of time like around backhoes and excavators. And so I think I'll always remember my dad was building the foundation for my aunt's new house. And we're just playing around and I found like a fish fossil. <laughs> and I was so confused because I was like, there's no, this isn't a lake. Like, I don't understand what's going on. So that kind of, you know, brought my attention to, you know, the environment's changed through time at a pretty young age. And that was pretty cool to me. I've always been a soil person. But yeah, just as a kid, I was always spent a lot of time on the river. was always just really into playing in the dirt and looking at soil. And now I know them as stratigraphic profiles. But as a kid, I just saw, you know, I just was observing, you know, different physical properties of rocks and soil. And I just like looking at it, which is what I do now. What is a stratigraphic profile? A stratigraphic profile is what we call rock cuts when you're driving. So when you see a big sheer cliff and you might notice that there's like different patterns to it. Sometimes you have like limestone that forms cliffs and then you have sandstone on top of it, which forms kind of a slope. So it's literally just studying the physical properties of soil and sediment and rock. Do you think you could have ended up in a career of being the sort of person who studies it from an engineering's perspective of choose the right sediments to provide a bed for a road or examine the kind of soil that a skyscraper is going into? Was that the direction that you might have gone with that interest? I wasn't interested in that. I was more interested in environmental change. Like even I always was interested in atmospheric sciences too and that kind of thing. So really like earth processes in general. It also sounds like you're interested in the substance itself, the actual sediments. Yeah, I just think soil is cool. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I just like it. (laughs) That's really great. And you're right. It is unusual, but I love that. I love it when somebody really gets a passion for something, especially something that's overlooked, that so many people are barely aware that they even have a life that's dependent upon soil. I mean, yeah, soil supports life. Uh, <laughs> we grow our food in it. We use it as a construction medium. It's really important to our day-to-day life. You spend a lot of time thinking about an ancient city. Does that affect the way you see modern cities when you are in St. Louis or happen to be in Chicago, for example? What do you notice that the rest of us might not? Maybe something I notice a little bit more is that oftentimes cities are built on cities. 
So if you look close enough, you can see the remains of, you know, what was there before. So if you go to Seattle, you can do a walking tour of the Seattle Underground, um, <laughs> which is really unusual and like really confusing. And what is the Seattle Underground? There is a, an entire road system that is underneath modern Seattle <laughs> that you can like go and explore. Yeah, like the same thing, I think, in New York and other places, too. Oftentimes there's um, old subway systems and just old systems that, you know, we've built on top of that, you know, we no longer use, but they're still intact. Most people, you know, think of Rome as, you know, one of the most intense examples of urban archaeology. It's like, what do you preserve, too, in terms of history? Because some people are more interested in the Roman era. Some people are more interested in the medieval era. History is just, you know, stacked on top of each other. We're living on the remains of the past. Have you been to Rome? Yeah, I was there. I actually did want to be a classic archaeologist. Whenever I first started, I was always really interested in Greek history, Roman history, and mythology. And I went to college and I was studying Greek and Latin, but it was too much time indoors for me, too much time working in a museum, and too much time working with text. I wanted to be outside a little bit more. And what is your life like now? What is a day like for you? How much time are you outside on site? And how much time do you have to be in front of a screen processing results or reading other people's papers? Yeah, what, is it, what does it look like for you? What's your life like? So I work for the Illinois State Archaeological Survey. And what we do most of the time is we are contracted through the Illinois Department of Transportation. So any highway project, it can be something as small as repaving a road or putting in a new sidewalk or bike trail or something as big as, you know, putting in a new interchange. And so we have to test for archaeological sites before they do any of this work. And if there is archaeological sites, we need to either advise them to change their work plan or to mitigate. So we have to actually do a full archaeological dig and collect all the data before it's destroyed. And so that's most of the day-to-day. So most times April to November, I'm outside <laughs> working a lot of times next to a highway. I'm working with coring equipment with an excavator to get a sense of what the soil looks like under the ground. So I advise them on how deep they need to dig and where they should be digging. What's the most interesting thing you've turned up? For me, it's working in some of these mounds, seeing, you know, the change in the environment through time where, you know, you have a stable surface, you have flood deposits, stable surface, and then mound. So just like seeing the construction and the sequence of soil to me is just the coolest thing. My dad was a geologist. So I'm kind of used to thinking about like those uh, layers that are underground and what's under the surface. And he spent a lot of time with big maps on a drafting table trying to basically draw a picture for himself. So he was a petroleum geologist. So it was toward an eye of trying to find places where the minerals might have shifted in such a way and formed in such a way that oil might be trapped there. But he was interested in so much more than that, and it involves so much more than that to find those spots. So I think I have a little bit of a sense of what that might be like to, instead of paying attention to what the other 99.99999% of human beings pay attention to what's happening above the soil, to be one of those people who pays attention to what's happening beneath it. So my time in the office, I'm trying to create visuals of what I can see in my own head. Sometimes I'm just, you know, interpolating a really large area of subsurface based on a series of two-inch cores. So what it requires is you need to be able to think in three dimensions in your own head. 
you have to be able to like visualize these things. What tools do you use for that, for capturing what's inside your head? Is it all digital or do you ever make yourself little sketches or do you find yourself ever in odd moments, do a little drawing of what might be going on? We used to joke that a lot of geology is arts and crafts. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's a lot of making what we call like cross sections. So you have these stratigraphic boundaries in one little segment and you're trying to figure out how those like dots connect basically and how they relate to each other. In general, how do you think this close attention to sediments and thinking about soil and studying this place where an ancient civilization was, does it affect your view or your philosophy or the way you view your own life? I think it's easier for me to accept that, you know, life is constantly changing and like understand that a lot of our view of the world is impacted by our present experiences. One example of how I view the world differently than a lot of other people, so many times I've heard people that I'm out with complain about their graffiti. They're like, why would you do that? Blah, blah, blah. Like, this is so terrible. But I don't think of it as a bad thing because first of all, I know that most of this graffiti will not be there in a hundred years. And the stuff that will remain, people are going to think is really cool. Um, in the same way that, you know, we see rock art or even, you know, there's graffiti from ancient Rome. And one thing, you know, that I always think is funny is that throughout time, um, dicks and boobs, it's the one thing that is always graffitied. <laughs> it will always be there. That's what people draw all the time. <laughs> Do you have any basic tenets that you live by or mottos or things you say to yourself to keep yourself going? What I do is a privilege. I'm really lucky to be able to do this you know, as a full-time job. This is something that people do as a hobby. We get people who volunteer to work with us because they're doing it for fun. It's also really important to be aware that the past I'm working with isn't my own. And our interpretation of the past is kind of influenced by the life that we live and the experiences that we live. So, you know, just being really conscious that I'm not inserting my own views and my own preconceived notions into those narratives. And then, yeah, just not to take myself too seriously either, because I'm an archaeologist. Um, <laughs> it's a fun job. There can be a lot of manual labor involved, a lot of attention to detail. So, you know, not to get too worked or worked up or stressed up or anything and just, you know, enjoy realize how lucky you are to be able to do what you love. I hear what you're saying too, right? It's very easy to insert our own cultural views or just kind of what we wish something might be when we're looking at something, but to really try to stand back and not add on to the information that's actually there with uh, an interpretation that might be taking it in the wrong direction. And it's not even the interpretations too. Sometimes it really begins at the question. Interesting. So sometimes you need to be careful to ask the right question because you already have assumptions built in to the questions that you're asking. So you need to really collaborate with other people and become aware of other people's experiences so you can realize that you've already assumed something from the beginning. That's such a great thing you just said. That's so true for everything, right? Like before we even start in questioning the interpretation, think hard about the question that we're even going to ask. Yep. Yeah. 
And if you could change one thing about the modern world, is there anything that you know about Cahokia that you wish our world had or some way of being alive that perhaps they had that we don't? It's not so much, you know, about Cahokia specifically, but more just from observing past people. And I guess I just wish we were a little bit more aware that the world is not static and we need to be better about long-term planning, especially for more sustainable solutions. I feel like a lot of times, especially in urban areas, we're designing infrastructure to solve problems to present issues, but there's not always a lot of consideration taken to how those issues might change in the future and that we need to create systems that are adaptable to those changes and also to be aware of the issues that we could be creating with these types of infrastructures. You know, one of the things that your story made me think of and preparing for this interview made me think of It's just the nature of success and failure. What do you think about the fact that this particular city ended? Does that mean it failed in some way? I mean, individual human lives end, and that's natural. We don't consider that the fact that someone died a failure. It's safe to say that every single one of the cities that are alive and thriving today won't necessarily be here a thousand years from now. And isn't it okay for some things in this world to be transient, for them to be robust and alive and rich and full and than to pass or to vanish. I think it would be better to accept that change isn't necessarily a bad thing. We have a tendency to view abandonment and migration as bad, right, and as failure. Sometimes it can be worse to try and maintain something that just is no longer sustainable. There's nothing wrong with moving on to something better. Just change the attitude towards it. It didn't fail. He just found something better. Right. And just even thinking about that in the city that was present where the Cahokia Mounds are, right, it might have been the allure of something more beautiful, more promising, or just different that pulled people away rather than the fact that it was impossible to live there anymore. Yeah, I think we have this habit of seeing big urban settlements that are sedentary as the pinnacle of what, what's best and what is most civilized. But there's plenty of examples where people do very well by living in small villages and living mobile lifestyles. I think there could be a change in mindset. We could change our grid system and have, you know, a grid system that's new and more easily adaptable to renewable sources of energy. Might be one way of, you know, better connecting resources in rural America, but also maintaining these cities as well. Caitlin, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Caitlin Rankin, where we talked about a city from long ago, has shed a new light on the city or town that you live in today. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people, and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. The Shape of the World is a completely carbon-neutral endeavor, thanks to reductions we made and from a carbon offset purchased from Tradewater. If you're interested in eliminating your carbon footprint, go to the website tradewater.us. 
You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find out more about Dr. Caitlin Rankin's work and a drawing of Caitlin by the artist Nicole Vigil, and much more. The Shape of the World's audio engineer is Andy Bosnack. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Additional music was provided by Joe Adamick. The Shape of the World's intern is Ian Wenzel. Thank you to our guest, Caitlin Rankin, for being on the show, and thank you to the Illinois State Archaeological Survey.